This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week, I'm joined by the restaurant critic, Grace Dent. Listeners will know how much I adore cooking programmes, and so there didn't seem a better guest than Grace, a regular critic on MasterChef, my ultimate comfort TV programme for our series finale. Grace is the host of the chart-topping podcast, Comfort Eating, in which she invites celebrity guests over to her home to talk about their lives through the prism of food. Now she gifts us a book, Comfort Eating, What Do We Eat When Nobody's Watching, which as well as talking about everybody's favourite foods, delves into Grace's own life. In this episode, we speak about how writing the book after the passing of her mother wasn't cathartic, but like picking a wound. And we discuss the pressures placed on women to look a certain way. As a Generation X woman born in the 70s, I will never be at grips with body positivity because we didn't have that as as children. You know, we're talking about television and and, in this interview, my earliest memories are being sat in front of the Miss World competition with our pads and our papers and the family watching these girls coming onto the screen and they would say, Julie is 36, 24, 36. And then they go, and Hayley is 38, 25, 35. And we would, these, for anyone who's not accustomed to these, are, these are hip, hip boob bum measurements. Plus, we speak about why she's ditched the booze and how Coronation Street has informed her perception of glamorous women. As a pre-warning, we are joined not only by Grace, as she calls from the Lake District, but also two very adorable dogs who occasionally pipe up and get involved in the interview. 
Apologies in advance. Grace Dent, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I have been really looking forward to speaking to you. So I read your book last week in a day. I just, oh, I asked for the PDF you. version and I said, oh, you know, can I, can I just have it before the book arrives? Because it might be a few days. And I just sat down and what happened was I read it and then had to go to Lidl, get all of my comfort food and then sit and read the second half. That's how to do this book because it makes you crave. It makes you crave beyond belief all the foods that remind you of happiness. And because of the sections of the book, I eat cheese, it then gives you all of those cravings. And all of a sudden now my cupboard is filled with, I've got tomato soup that I've not had in years because I remembered, oh, that's what I used to have when I was sick and I was a kid. So I'm going to get yes. tins of that in. Cannot believe how expensive it is now. Highest oh, oh, this is the thing. <laughs> but isn't, uh, aren't your cupboards a happier place? Yeah. Now that you've let those, and I'm going to say brands, those brands in, yeah. that for some reason, remind us of that. Mo- yeah, that moment we came yeah. in from school at... 12 o'clock. I mean, I, I, I remember when I was a little girl, I hated school. I hated infant school. I hated junior school and I didn't want to be there, but I used to go home for my school dinner. And when I walked in, my mother made me, tomo- it would be Heinz, I think, Heinz tomato soup in a cup sometimes with cheese on toast, it, which, which is delicious. And I'm speaking, as someone, I'm a, I you know I am a restaurant critic. I have the <laughs> finest and fanciest foods at my at my disposal at any time. I could, if any time I want to go out and have a delicious bowl of shards of yeast or whatever they're serving <laughs> at this, you know, at this fancy restaurant, these eleven course tasting menus, which are essentially kidnap. I always say, you go in there. And you, <laughs> we were at one the other day. Me and my my bloke were in a were in a, a tasting menu like that, a, a fancy place. And after about five, he said to me, five courses, he said, I really want to go. And I said, I do too, but you know you can't can ne- you can't go. Le- it would be easier to stand up and flip the tables over and and, and and cause a scene than to just walk out because at least they would excuse you if they thought you were having some kind of episode. Whereas if you just walked out because you weren't enjoying it anyway, anyway, rude, rude, rude. Give me, can you give me one second while I try to see why a collie, <laughs> a collie dog wants to be in this interview? This is the worst collie dog, should be on the side of a mountain gathering up sheep, but is oh. actually just walking around. What keeps bringing me uh, all the time through the interview, an old Christmas decoration, which is a Santa, which she is chewed until the whole thing is just drenched completely in spit. I call it spit Santa. And I (laughs) spend all night going, stop throwing it at me. So anyway, getting back to comfort food. Look, I'm I'm going to, I'd like to apologize for what I've done to your eating habits. I'd like to apologize that these things, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say these things are a health food. No. Cheesy things, potatoy things, pastory things, sweet things, things in wrappers, 
things that are absolutely the opposite of a of a nutty superfood salad. However, there is an argument, I think, that they make us feel. They make us feel something. And uh, and I kind of, in the book, in Comfort Eat, in the book, I want to know why. I want to know why when people come on my podcast to talk about the things that comfort them, why do they divide down into the same categories time and time again? Nobody ever asks for anything very, very complex. It's always... Um, it's always potatoes uh, and uh, pasta out of tins. And there's a lot of beans on toast going on, a lot of cheese, a lot of melted cheese, nachos, creamy things. And I, I, I really, early on, I began to think these things seem to work as a portal to a, a set of things that happened in our lives. Now, it is either our very early childhood a great child minder that we had that fed us them. Our first days at school when we were scared and we felt horrible and suddenly the bell went and we got taken into a dining hall and we were given some jam pudding and that jam pudding forever ends up being pure happiness. It reminds us of our mums and our dads. It reminds us of our uh, the first flats that we had when we first moved out of home, so many of the celebs that come on the podcast, they talk about the first flat they had, these stinking flats with cockroaches crawling yeah. up the walls. But on a Friday night, they always made this pasta dish. And I think, you know, I always thought with Comfort Eating, the podcast was that if I'd have got people around and asked them, sat them down in my living room and said, tell me about their childhood, they would have said no. Yeah, I'm not telling you about my childhood. I'm here to promote a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the moment I say, so when you went to the shops, what did you ask your mum to get you when she went to get some sweets? And then they say, well, I always asked for cola cubes. And I say, why cola cubes? And then before you know it, you've got this huge story about their parents and their parents' relationship. And So, you know, I'm fascinated by how food un unlocks all that. Yeah. I'm so sorry that I've got, I'm so sorry I've got like dogs uh, crawling around in the background. Let I'm speaking to you from, I'm speaking to you from the lakes. And when I'm in the lakes, I'm very much the opposite of the person you see on MasterChef in, um, <laughs> full makeup and a wrap dress tottering along in heels. I'm very much in my kind of, I don't know if you watch Emmerdale, but I'm very much like one of the dingles when I get here. I'm just a woman completely festooned in, in pet hair, generally <laughs> with a bit of scone in my hairline. <laughs> what was so nice to me, it was, um, so I was really thinking about who, who would make a really good season finale for the Radio Times podcast. And I've wanted to talk to you for ages because just as you were saying about how food unlocks memories, I have the same with TV. And my one of the things that I really treasure is my dad is such a foodie, but he's not necessarily a man of many words um, or many emotions. Uh, maybe deep down, but on the surface, there's not that much. And our show if we're watching together, is MasterChef. There's a restaurant really close to me in Finsbury Park called Osteria Tufo, and they have your review of their restaurant oh. in a frame, kind of as you walk past. And I saw it, and I thought, 
great. There you go. That's who I'm getting. So it all feels very full circle. So I want to talk to you about the TV that you love. And I, I love this from your book because in the first... I think maybe three sections. You mention so much TV. There's Pippikins, Finger Bobs, Crown Court, The Sullivans, <laughs> yeah. Dynasty. And that's not even all of them. The soaps. And you said telly was the background noise for the first 18 years of my life. Absolutely. I feel like we've got this kind of love of TV. But first yeah. and foremost, start me off with what is the view from your sofa now? What's your telly setup? You know... God, I'm so, uh, it's, you've asked me this at such an interesting time. Up until about four weeks ago, I had this 65 inch Sony television, right? Because television is so important <laughs> to me that one day I just went right, ah, oh, I think I got a check from something. I went off the biggest television imaginable. So I bought Very this nice. telly. The moment it arrived, my bloke said to me, Grace, this telly's too big for the living room. It's actually taken out the fireplace <laughs> and it's obscured a window, right? And I was like, don't tell me what to do, man. <laughs> Stop. Oh, this is just this typical, the patriarchy. Yeah. You think that... You think that I can't buy a television? Well, this is my television that I bought with my own money, I said, as the room suddenly became very dark because there was no <laughs> sunlight coming in. So... I have struggled on with this television. Also, every time you put it on, it gave me a headache because it was so big. You're like, you can't see all of it in one, can you? You're having to... <laughs> Couldn't see it all. I felt as if I was on the... I was, I'd chosen seat 1A at a view cinema, basically. <laughs> the worst seat in the house. The worst seat. <laughs> and also, I, was, I wasn't even... I mean, God, this is it. Going down to gender stereotypes. I didn't even learn how to work it. I just turned it on. And my bloke is going, well, do you know how to do the Nikon, just white noise coming out by this point? And I'm like, yeah, don't tell me. I know what to do. I've read the pamphlet. I hadn't even read the pamphlet. <laughs> anyway, so it got to about four or five weeks ago. And I thought, I'm going to have to admit defeat. And I put the television on eBay and two South African boys came <laughs> and picked it up. And they were just like, why are you getting rid of it? And I said, just far too big and they took it away so right now at the moment I don't have a television now not having a television you know going back to my book this is the first time in my entire life I have not had I am one of them right I'm one of those people that walks amongst us that don't have a television television has been the background in my life you know when I was I think I was sat in front of a television as the moment I could be could sit upright on a chair rudimentary 70s childhood was I was just placed <laughs> on a sofa probably and and just put in front of exactly Pipkins Crown Court um uh finger bobs uh all these different uh, Coronation Street very big for me as a little girl I think that Coronation Street's just formed exactly what type of woman I ended up being you know I was the 1970s they just put me in front of Coronation Street and I just watched these Elsie Tanner and Bette Lynch and thought big hair big boobs that's glamour that's glamour there's no other type of glamour so to go back to now I've got no telly my plan is I'm going to remodel the living room this is what you say you don't say redecorate now I'm remodeling nice. I'm going to remodel the living room and then I'm going to reassess whether I need a telly but at the moment it's strange, isn't it? Because we're in this pot, we're in this 
point of life where, if I'm very honest, the times that I actually walk over to our television set and press the corner and put it on have become so much reduced. But I'm still watching quite a lot of telly. I'm flipping up my laptop. I'm watching it on trains. I'm going through recommendations of what, you know, what people have said to me. I watch a God, between me and you, I'm sure no one's listening to this. I'm watching a hell of a lot of YouTube. I um, Are you? Because I, I, one of the things I pay for that people blink when they can't believe it, I, I pay for YouTube because I can't bear the ads. But then I, I love Elizabethan history. So when the world's too, is too much, which it often is, I mean, it is every day, the world, modern world's too much. And I've just like, I just slipped down this hole of like watching you know, documentaries about Henry VIII and his wives and, uh, all, you know, also the War of the Roses and, and before that, and, you know, and all the, I just, so that's me. So will I go back to having a 75-inch television? Like, I, I see, when I bought that, I wanted to be Kim Kardashian because I saw, <laughs> I, think I, saw <laughs> I think I saw Kim Kardashian and Kanye back in Happier Days with their, like, 80 inch television were just casually watching it beside <laughs> their their living greenery wall yeah. and I thought that's me but do I want to go back to that I don't know I don't know I think I'm quite happy dipping in and out you know I want so yeah but television is to me has television brought me up I think it's really interesting to also reflect on the living rooms that you grew up in versus the living rooms that you're in now and how they yeah. have changed or evolved or how that represents a difference in you as well. How do you think that the living room that you grew up in is different from the view from your sofa now? Oh, God. I mean, look, I fight in my daily life now to be... Minimal isn't... I'll never be minimal, but I try to be minimal. I try, I'm always walking around my living room now questioning, why is this in my living room? You know, I, I try, uh, do we need this occasional table? Do we need this pile of newspapers? Do we need these, 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 do do we need this, this uh, awful candle that somebody brought us that is, you know, I'm not going to, Yankee candles, I'm very against them, right? Do we need this? Do we need this butterscotch Yankee candle that is an affront to humanity? And the reason I'm like that is because my mother loved stuff, right? My mother, God rest her mortal soul, she loved stuff. I used to call her living room Dingley Dell, right? <laughs> my mother loved horse brass. She loved ceramic ornaments. She loved collecting stuff from charity shops, mismatched, mismatched plates, mismatched um cups and you know little toby jugs and she had and it was the place was just full on top of that my mother was not massive on housework i realized that now now like now you know my mother if i think of her it's her sitting on a sofa covered in cats right like reading woman's own and going i'll have to i'll have to put a hoover around in a minute spoiler she didn't right so when i when I look back at that, I just think of this living room just stuffed with things. And I think that, you know, for the working classes in the 70s and 80s, the more things you had in your living room, the more you were you were doing well because it was a status symbol to have the big VHS, uh, you know, the big VHS recorder 
a, a telly and uh, a, a set of an, a set of occasional tables, <laughs> nest of tables, the big um, the big kind of dresser on the side, which was festooned in 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 school photos, and I remember going leaving home at eighteen and going. Never again will I live in so much. I'm going to say it tat. I can say this now. They're all dead, right? Like there's, there's one freeing thing about your family beginning to die and you becoming the captain because they've all died by default is I can say it. I lived in the house of tat and I've moved away from the tat. But the funny thing is, although is that I'm currently speaking from the Lake District where I'm in my brother's house. And if I was to just walk into the garage at the end of the kitchen here, it's full of the boxes of that very same tap brought oh. from my mother's house because we can't get rid of it. No, you We're can't. so emotionally attached to it. Me and my brother go, right, time to take it to the charity shop. And then we go, oh, little ceramic cat with a wonky paw. And then we put it back in the box. But that's OK, because we're just going to hand it on to the people below us in the family when we die. But it's very hard, isn't it? It's very hard to get rid of something that has had a sentimental meaning to someone that you love. Absolutely. And that doesn't go away. You're so right. There's things that I have that you think that's crumbling, that doesn't work anymore. But if it's a reminder of that person, you just, you cling on to it for dear life, even if it lives in a box in your garage. It's not going to make the mantelpiece. It's um, when Siobhan McSweeney came on Comfort Eating, she had... We both, you know, she'd lost her, she lost her mother and then she lost her father. And then her flat burned down. This was a, a, a before Derry Girls, you know, and she was, she said to me something so important. She said, look, you've got to sometimes think your mother doesn't live in the slippers, Grace. <laughs> and that, I just thought that's so, you know, you're, you're carrying around this like old pair of worn slippers for years. And uh... she said, your mother doesn't live in the slippers. And every time I find something like that, I think your mother doesn't live in the old, disgusting Grattan's catalogue. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's so difficult. Give me one second because I now have a paranoia that the collie is eating a yogurt pot. I love animals and people say that you're not meant to say this, but I kind of love dogs and cats and dogs more than people. And you know that the um, that Jay Rayner was complaining the other day that he went to a pub and there was dogs in there. And I said, Jay, I would, I would rather that the entire pub was just dogs <laughs> sitting at the tables eating soup and sausage sandwiches. The natural, that painting that you used to get with dogs playing snooker. Yeah. I, I say, I used to think wherever that pub is, I would be a local because, so anyway, but they're, they're, um, as anyone knows, they're a pain in the neck if you're trying to do anything useful, which I am. I now. know, but then also I think, let them be involved. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When you think about comfort eating, what's your comfort TV? I think that everybody, Everybody has somewhere that they hide in television and it often has very little to do with their normal life. I live in a house with a bloke who's obs- who's obsessed with Below Deck. I love that you call him a bloke. He's just a bloke. Every cool woman has like a term 
for their husband. So like Marianne Keys, I think she calls him like the tall guy or something. Yeah. And I just I just love it. Yeah, he's just he, he's just my bloke. But he watches Below Deck all <laughs> day. Do you know do you know Below yeah, Deck? Do yes, you know what I've, I mean? I've seen, I've seen quite and, a and lot for, of it. And for a while I really got into Below Deck. It was my comfort thing and I watched series after series after series until one day I sat there and I thought why do I care if the sorbet doesn't set in time for the guests to get it at the eight o'clock dinner? And why do I care that Julie was asked to put out serviettes, but she did it with a bad attitude and now she has to speak to the, (laughs) (laughs) you know, she has to speak to the the captain. So I stopped that. I've stopped watching that right what like my comfort telly right now though i've moved away from below deck and went into those absolutely unnoticed one hour true crime documentaries on netflix you know the one no one's watched and you can't even explain them to anyone because it's uh, just a random murder and it's been made so cheaply yeah um just strung together yeah uh, absolutely strung together. So I like to, uh, I, I like to lose myself in, in, in a murder. I, I always, I always think I would have been a good, a really good detective. Like, I think that there's so many of us out there that think that when I was a little girl, my, I, I remember saying to my parents, I want to be in the police and I want to, I want to be in CID and I want to solve murders. I was just little. And they just kind of went, no, you don't. <laughs> and, then I, and then I, and I went, oh, okay. They went, you'd have to go out on the street for two years as part of the police and you can't do it because you're a woman. And I remember watching Juliet Bravo around that time and thinking it was a, this 1970s BBC cop thing with a woman. The whole point was it was a woman being a policewoman. No. I remember thinking, I remember thinking, oh, I w- I'd love to do that. And it's funny now because now I'm this age and I'm like, I bloody could have done that. Yeah, you could have done that. I could have done it, but uh, yeah, I you know I don't watch I don't really watch cookery shows at all. I was going to say, does that feel like work? Yeah, this is it. I need to watch. I need to watch things that are absolutely the opposite of what I do. I do really like the Kardashians. I know I've met. This is the second time they've come up, but again, I feel like I've watched the Kardashians from right from the beginning and it's gone into such a strange place now because it's kind of through the looking glass and they you know they're all they're all they're, I mean, they're all fighting and their relationships and their brands and uh there's something about the kardashians that i will whenever it's on i will suddenly find myself i've lost two and a half hours just watching him cry about something I kind of love Kim Kardashian, though. Like, I I kind of... I'm I'm one of her cheerleaders. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. I think I'm slightly immune to it because I've never watched it. And I'm not sure if it's because I don't have the right channels, or et cetera, et cetera. But I honestly don't know if I could name all of them or tell them apart. As in, I, I wouldn't be able to, to point to them and say this is K- K- Courtney. But you know Kim. You, you I know Kim. Of, I do know you Kim. You don't know Courtney from Chloe? I don't think so, no. And my flatmate is going to sit here and think, Kayan, we've lived together for two years. Are you serious? Who even are you? Who even you are you? don't even know Courtney. Such an abysmal flatmate. <laughs> you need to put in the work. I do. And do you know what? I'm always happy to kind of get lost in one of those reality TV shows. So, And like Below Deck, when you're in, you're in. Sucked in. Hours of your life gone. And I'm okay with that, you know? If anything, it's research. I'm really conscious about what I get involved with in television because I feel like time is... I mean, I say this now because I'm older. Time is so precious and it is so easy to lose 86 hours of your life to Love Island. Yeah, oh, no. And it's so... It's so easy. It's too much. I think that, you know, with all reality shows, that you start to watch it and then within about six, seven hours, you think... Yeah, I know this is trash, but I actually am learning a socio-anthropological lesson here. So this isn't trash. This isn't actually just distilling my brain into caramel. I'm learning (laughs) about something. Uh, And you start to become very, very het up about it. You know, back in the bad old days, I was so into Big Brother. So so into it. And I used to end up appearing on the shows and going in and arguing with the actual contestants. I was so hit up. They used to say to me, Grace, you know, you're a really easy booking because you come in and you just argue like a normal punter that watches it on telly. You're just not like a television grid. And I think, though, that's not right. It's not right. You shouldn't be, you really shouldn't be shouting at Tizzy on Channel 4 at 11 o'clock because she didn't take a bin bag out. I still think it's it's just not gracious at all, is it really? So you said earlier, and I thought it was really interesting, about how you wanted to become a police officer, but it wasn't necessarily a possibility because of being a woman. And when you got into journalism, I mean, journalism as a whole, mm. you know, I work in it, you work in it still, mm. is a is a white male middle class yeah. industry, really. Yeah. And it's about who you know, what you know. So I wondered if we could reflect on that, if going into it, you ever felt being a woman was going to be something that held you back or were your parents kind of proud of your career and your achievements in terms of pushing that or thinking about that? I think that my mother instinctively thought from the beginning that I just make my life very, very difficult for myself. I was from a background where nobody had a career. Certainly nobody knew anybody in media at all. I, I, I lived in uh, in a little, in an area of Carlisle, right up on the Scottish border, nobody had been to university. Uh, nobody had ever been in academia, even. So it's, it's like it's it to to my my mother, although she was proud of me ultimately when she saw me walking into MasterChef, and I think that 
I think it's a myth sometimes that everybody's parents are automatically happy that they have ambitious children because I think that my mother always sensed from the 70s onwards that I would have been a lot happier if I'd married a local builder's son and had the biggest house in Carlisle because he just continually kept extending it and we had a really good breakfast bar and we had a really really good and the older I get I sometimes think was she wrong (laughs) I'm not sure because she I mean I think I would have been absolutely bored sick I think I would have probably ran away from that marriage within about three years (laughs) I think that it would have been a horrible mess but it's funny because uh, they she didn't she was a woman of you know my she was a woman of when she was born in the 30s and in the north and to her making a good marriage was much more important than running around the world scrabbling especially in in the world of media there was never any definites yeah. you know i think one of the saddest things with when i look back at that, you know, when my parents were alive, to bring them very normal people into a world of media, there was never any, there's not, there's not much definite, is there? It was always very, oh, I got this television show, but we don't know how many we're making. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm bringing a book out, but I don't know how many I'm going to sell. Oh, maybe I haven't sold any at all. And it was, uh, I think it was lovely for her to be able to go into Morrison's or Asda and rearrange the book display so that mine was up front. It's they, you know, they, they loved me and they were very, very, very proud. I always say this though, you know, my Northern family have always resolutely refused to treat me as the star that I think I am inside my own head, right? <laughs> I love I- it. It's just like any story that I try to tell them about my celebrity lifestyle and yeah. A-list, A-list people I just met last week <laughs> will be upended by like the cat chasing a quality street rapper. Oh, but I love that. And that just keeps you grounded. Too much grounded, Kellyanne. Too much. Just once, once in my life would I have liked to have seen them all <laughs> with their hands underneath their chin wrapped like Victorian cherubs yeah. listening to me talk about the time <laughs> I met Dermot O'Leary. But no, it's not interested. But no. Also, my my mum is South African and she grew up there. So I think quite a lot of the people that I interview... I mean, she doesn't, especially kind of like more old school people, or even like Hollywood. I mean, she's not, she's not got a clue, but she's just like, and you're the star. I remember when I did my first ever <laughs> podcast interview, and it's it's a different skill, you know. I've done print journalism, but I had never, you know, had to do it for audio. The way that you speak has to be different. You have to think yeah. about your your nose, your arms, your eyes. And I always say, I wonder if we could talk about et cetera, et cetera. And I remember saying to my mum, I'm interviewing Stephen mm-hmm. Fry and I'm really nervous about it. She said, Kellyanne, they are lucky to be in a room with you. Oh. You are the star. And I thought, mum... Mum, and you wrote in your book, and I think it's just something that will just, I mean, I just called my mum afterwards because I was like, I need to, just need to tell you I love you, was mm. nobody will ever be as interested in what's going on in your life as your mother. 100%. That will stay with me. The The way that you talk about so many things in your book, just 
just made my heart Darling, like that 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 is the absolute truth when your mother is alive you always you we always owe our mother a phone call our mother has always got in first and rang us and we went fancy busy i'll ring you back yeah. you're always owing your mother a phone call and then when you do ring her you can tell her the most mundane rubbish yeah. about your life. And she will say, listen, because you're a baby, you can go, oh, the, the council have lost my wheelie bin. <laughs> and she'll go, tell me more. Tell me more about that, about, yeah. about you applying for a parking permit in granular detail. I am here. And then, I know. And then your mother dies and you realize literally nobody cares about <laughs> about this stuff and uh, you've lost that person um who who's who who is always pleased to see you i mean i know that uh, you know my relationship with my mother was absolutely not perfect we very strong and i think this is the same with a lot of women we strong women strong personalities we could argue yeah. over anything we were always in silences with each other until one of us would eventually ring the other one up you know some umbrage <laughs> over something that yeah. was said but yeah, they, that bond is, that bond was very, very, very strong. So, you know, yeah. I didn't, with the, with the book, I didn't really plan to go so deep about the death of my mother. But, you know, the, the fact is that I started to sit down and write about comfort food and comfort eating. And I did it at a time when she'd not been dead very long. And, um, I've started to realise now that I am absolutely unable to write throwaway toilet books that people, <laughs> people, can, I always yeah. thought, I thought I'll just churn this out and it can just be something that people sit on the toilet and go, ha ha, pasta. And then no, <laughs> before I knew it, I was talking people lovingly through, you know, my mother's death and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. Is it cathartic? Absolutely not. No, it's just like basically. <laughs> It's basically like picking at a picking yeah, at a wound. A wound. But, but look, it's the truth. It's truth. I do have this tendency to write these books where it starts off about Finder's crispy pancakes and it ends up in Alzheimer's very quickly. And, you know, I, I think that at this point in my life, as a generation X person, I'm going through what millions of other people are going through right now. I am not the first person in history to have dying parents. Everyone's parents are going to die. And I'm not the first person in history to buy body shop lip balm in the 80s. These are just things that yeah. everyone did. Uh, however, I love to be able to lovingly document this. You know, what I, I think that what I write is uh, it's about food and it's about history and social attitudes and family bonds and love yeah and when i write i just hope that millions of other people feel seen with what i write about um cancer and alzheimer's and things like that and also for people younger than me that are coming up i want them to be able to look at that and go it's not it's not insane to be there yeah. during death, but also go straight back to work because sometimes that's what happens. And it's not, yeah. these are all very valid things and very normal things that happen. So look, um, maybe this is, I don't know whether this is the last time I speak about my family, but probably not because um, I really want to buy, I really want to write next about drinking. 
Yes, because I saw recently you said that you'd given up alcohol, and I yes, there were two parts that I thought was really interesting because I thought we're seeing a lot of my friends recently have stopped yeah. drinking yes. or people that you know were always the ones that were out the latest. I mean, I'm I'm no stranger to a late night yeah. and a yeah. few too many drinks are really reevaluating their relationship with it. Yes. And also, I've seen people, and I was thinking from the perspective of kind of a food critic, if that's ever proved, I don't know, kind of an area of contemption because yes. you're thinking, oh, should I be having a, a drink? Or if that impacted your decision. So wh- why did you stop drinking? Well, I stopped drinking. Two, I'm two years sober now, uh, this month. And it's... I, I stopped because... I had wanted to stop since I was 30, but there was, for me, there was literally no way out. Not because I was never a falling down drunk person that had to hide vodka in a toilet cistern, right? And I think that if you are that person, I think that society might understand more that you want to give up drinking. And they might encourage you and they might tell you to go to AA because that's classed yeah. as a yeah. drinking problem. Whereas I would say, and that's a that's a very different, that's not a different thing. It's not a different thing. It's a, it, That's a way of, of having a problem with alcohol. I would say that 99% of people in Britain, yeah. just like Have me, just had to drink. They were just drinking every day because that's what we do in this country. Didn't I don't need to hide vodka in a toilet system to drink it because it's everywhere that I go every yeah. and and was you know was since I was I started drinking when I was 14 and that's not because I had a drink problem it's because that's how that's when people began drinking in Cumbria yeah, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. I and I drank right the way through uh, sixth form and right the way through uni and came down and then went into London, media lifestyle, free drink, free yeah. drink, free bars, the 90s, free drink, free bars. Oh, was around the music industry a lot, drinking, 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 around, then went into being a, a, a restaurant critic where it was like being given the the you know the keys to the to the, the world and an expense account. And everywhere I go, People say, oh, Miss Dent, we'll send some champagne over. And I thought, so this was a couple of years ago, I thought, I am not bouncing back anymore. I'm not. Gone are the days where I would get up and think, gosh, I feel terrible, but I'll just have a couple of drinks and I'll be okay again, which is what we would do on a weekend when we were younger. Yeah. I just thought, I can't lose any more time during my... When my parents were dying, it became made me it made me feel very very aware of the clock ticking. I was ve- I was very aware about two years ago that I I just never I didn't want to lose any more weekends. I didn't want to lose any more days where I wasn't fully functional. And I I was also aware that I was fully trapped because unless I gave up entirely I was always just going to be 20 minutes away from my next drink because everywhere I go it's like oh come to our awards come to our awards ceremony and then you can sit at a table for seven and a half hours 
Yeah. We drink our weddings, everybody's weddings. Oh, just get up at, get there at 11 and we're going to drink all day. Christenings. Uh, everything was just drink. I thought I'm fully trapped. The only thing I can do is go completely sober. So I, and then the moment you you become sober and it starts to come out of your system. I mean, just trying to unpickle yourself after, you know, decades decades you know my first drink was I think my first drink was like a bottle of Merrydown or a kind of special brew or something like that in a park in 1986 trying suddenly trying to get all of this and then bang your life just starts to be a hundred percent better and then you have to stop yourself being evangelical because you want to you feel like you've got yeah, religion you want to tell everyone you feel like you want to grab people and go have you heard the good news does it affect me being a restaurant critic? No, it means that I could actually properly yeah. do my job. I'm not saying that my colleagues aren't doing their jobs. Look, but we have got a we have got a reputation for going out and having a drink, and there's drink yeah. everywhere. And mm. I think that I'm I'm I have my clarity in writing, my clarity in what I've eaten. And what it tasted like is so much stronger since I stopped drinking. If people, I still get sent drinks to the table, but I just have to kind of, I don't say no to them. I just push them onto someone else. There was a point in your book, it was really interesting because again, it was something that I was thinking about in terms of relationship with food. You know, both women both live through the societal expectations of being women. Mm. And um, in it, you talk about you're reflecting on ordering fish and chips. And you're talking about how you'd been on this kind of dieting cycle. And then you say, by the time we were ordering, all thoughts of diet and low calorie, high fibre plans had left my mind. That could all start again on Monday or next month with depressing regularity for the rest of my life. And I wanted to speak about when you're job is about food and as women often there is not necessarily problematic but a complicated relationship with food because food ultimately leads to body image i wondered what your thoughts were in terms of if the two have ever been conflicting oh god look is my attitudes to food and body image are they complex and conflicting oh my god yes I I mean, look, as a Generation X woman born in the 70s, I will never be at grips with body positivity because we didn't have that as, as children. You know, we're talking about television and, and in this interview. My earliest memories are being sat in front of the Miss World competition with our pads and our papers and the family watching, these girls coming onto the screen and they would say, Julie is 36, 24, 36. And then they'd go, and Hayley is 38, 25, 35. And we would, these, for anyone who's not accustomed to these, are, these are hip, hip boob bum measurements. And from an early age, I knew that, so you have to have the big boobs, the tiny waist, and the, and not big thighs. Oh no, not by, not big hips. They needed to be shapely, but never big, and certainly not as big as the boob bit, right? So those measurements are seared into the the mindset of 
of of of my generation as women i think that so when we see lizzo and people like that and and we see them being praised and we see them being oh, they've inspired all these women i think that at very most we often go well well done you but we can't see it we can't feel it ourselves yeah. we always yeah. like, we always think or the great majority of us think smaller 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 trying to be smaller and we grew up i i say in the book piles of slimming magazines around me all the time my my mother yeah, yeah. spent her entire life on a diet her entire life dieting and but failing to diet and then eating far too much and um so to me i grew up having it drummed into me that once you get past a thousand calories a day you really have eaten too much by this point. Everything after that, 1,100, 200, 300, 400, 500, well, that's a lot. Now, I know this is probably absolute rubbish that, that that people are listening to now go, what are you talking about? But this was the 70s. This was the 80s. These pull out and keep things that ha- fell out of tabloid newspapers that said, Here, you know, morning, breakfast, half a grapefruit. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Lunch. Half a boiled egg with some cost lettuce, you know, undressed. We lived through Weight Watchers and the Rosemary Connolly yeah. plan and all of that. Does it conflict me now? I uh, I have to just be, look, I I am very careful with what I eat. I say, I always say that although I eat delicious things, I am always eating delicious things. I've got the chance to have the most beautiful patisserie the most beautiful you know jus and stews and 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 puddings and whatever a lot of my job is for me personally is saying is is saying no it's saying uh eating a little bit of it just eating enough to know what i'm talking about because uh there is no ex- it's so easy in my job to eat the things that, uh, like, I love potatoes. I love, uh, you know, if I go to a restaurant and there's pom aligo or, or pom puree, all these different types of uh, dauphinois potato, all of these, anything that's just exactly potatoes with some kind of cream or stock or butter. Or, I love all that. I love carbohydrate. I love fresh these loaves of fresh bread that come out with with 200 grams of cultured butter placed onto a pebble and given to you all of these things so divine so i uh, i am always uh, completely conflicted i you know i appear on television and it is so it, it it's awful that the smaller i am on television the nicer everybody tells me that I look. And I think that's the same for almost every woman on television. I just I just interviewed Shirley Ballas the other day and we, oh, she's amazing. she looks incredible. We were talking we, we were talking exactly about this, that you don't want to live a life where you can't have a piece of coffee cake or you can't and you want to have these delicious things. But then you're also aware if you're on television that with Shirley Ballas being sewn sewn into her dresses before she goes on, she'd just been on a juice fast somewhere. There isn't there isn't any uh there isn't any easy answers to this, but I do know that 
I am I I think about where I am going to allocate all of my calories every day and I allocate those things on delicious things. If I am if I see a really big cheese scone dripping with melted cheese on top that's set, <laughs> I am having it and I'm having the butter and I'm going to have it with whatever, you know. They do them up in the lakes with delicious uh almost like chutneys. Oh nice. However, I do push a lot of food onto other people. I'm always being given food and I sit there and I think there is no prizes here for finishing two ro- two boxes of these Fortnum and Mason's chocolates. Mr. Fortnum and Mr. Mason are not going to knock on the door and go, well done, Grace. Thank you. For- yep. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is so, it's so hard because uh, I think that you'll never, I think for women my age group, it's very difficult to get those that feeling out of your head that, uh, that you know, I grew up at page three in the sun where, you know, my my absolutely earliest memories of is, is, is picking up the sun newspaper and opening it up and it's saying, Susie is into tiddlywinks and blah, 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 whatever. Susie's into tiddlywinks and, and <laughs> collecting stamps. And there'd be a picture of a woman just with this massive set of boobs and a 21-inch waist. And I would sit there just reading it going, oh, my God, imagine having 38-inch boobs and a 21-inch waist. This is amazing. That's what I want to be when I'm, when I'm oh, no. that age. But now also fashion changes so much. And this is what we don't realise is that, you know, even generationally, you can see we want different things because they're in fashion. You know, so my mum's always, you know, it's always been the slim hips and the the petite bottoms. But actually now it's about having as big a bum as possible (laughs) and and teeny tiny boobs. And you think, well, I didn't get that, you know, or I, I got this or I didn't get that. And you think like, why am I looking at my body like it's a piece of fashion but that's that's the world we live in you know i one of the reasons why i've never really like i love clothes but i've never followed fashion because fashion is it for me is an extra layer of angst Mm. and sadness i know that i've got quite a big bust and, and 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 Cumbrian hips. I've got the hips of women that lived on the side of mountains for centuries, <laughs> just bringing up kings, killing them, killing pigs themselves, you know. <laughs> and I have got that body. I've got that body. So when they say, and this this year, what's this summer? What's in is spaghetti strapped dresses. I'm like, no, not not in my house. It's never <laughs> going to be. Or they'll say, look, oh. What it is this year? It's um, structureless maxi dresses. And I'm like, I honestly look in a structureless maxi dress like somebody's just thrown a blanket <laughs> over the, over uh, the O2, the O2. Or I look like, I look like when I was at school and sometimes we used to put a hat on the school cow on her birthday just to make her fancy. That's what I look like. It's just ridiculous. I need structured things that give me a bit of shape. So fashion to me, I think that um, I think Karl Lagerfeld would have uh, had an absolute field day trying to put something on me. I always think you look gorgeous, Thank but you. it's not about that. It's about Thank you. Uh, you know, so it's so much more than that. But I've always thought you look when you're on MasterChef and you've got your makeup on and your heels. I always think what <laughs> what the epitome of like class and just like 
the way that you walk and the way that you talk, I just think, oh my goodness, you gem of a woman. So I thank you. You might think that you look like the O2 in a blanket, but I think you look stunning at all times. It it all goes back to Coronation Street in the seventies and the idea that really it's all about the the silhouette and being a being able to put something on that accentuates the bits that you want to see and hides the bits that you don't. I I love the idea of I I'm I can't do minimal when it comes to the way that I look. I I like all the plates spinning at once. Me too. And a red lipstick. Oh, lipstick or an eyeshadow when I and eyebrows and eyelashes and I sit down in makeup chairs for television and they always say what can we do? Because so many females that sit in the chair say, I don't really want anything. And I always say, I want you to put as much makeup on me <laughs> as we can until they say action. <laughs> Just okay. keep putting it on as much. If you think about wedding makeup, that plus. Because I, wa- I want the whole lot. It's uh... How did you get into TV? I... Uh, Always wanted to be on television from when I was four or five years old, watching Top of the Pops at home in Carlisle. I used to think there is a bigger world out there and it's in London. And then you can you can get off with members of Duran Duran if you go there. <laughs> and um, having really absolutely no marketable skills whatsoever, I used to look at people like Paulie Yates on television, who was a television presenter in the 80s, and I used to think, I want to do that. I want to, I want to go to, I want to go to London and I want to be on telly interviewing people. So though I, I came down and I really wanted to be an MTV presenter, uh, but I wasn't an ex model or anything. I was just a strange looking northerner that hadn't had her teeth done and like was never, never really felt in that, in the in, in the in crowd in the nineties to get that kind of a gig. But being a journalist meant that I started to get invited on television just because I was writing so much. And uh, I think the first, I started to, to appear on telly a lot on kind of late with late night chat shows where they would bring out a journalist to argue a point. And from that, one of my first bigger things I did was the culture show on uh, BBC Two. I absolutely loved that. And then just started to appear on, more and more things I wrote on screen wipe with Charlie Brooker and my TV career has been long and illustrious. There's not a TV show that I haven't appeared on. <laughs> I think I've been <laughs> on everything. But I, you know, I love, I love doing television, but yeah. I think that the amount of time it takes means that the amount of time it takes for the amount of bang for your book that you actually get and the amount of waiting around and sitting yeah. in horrible hotels. I'm always happy when I get home and I could just have a stretch of writing again, really. I mean, I'm, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite nice to not be able to not have to put your bra on and to not have to bother. So that's the, so problem. That's the problem with a lot of television is it absolutely yeah. requires you to put a bra on and... I know, and an underwire bra at an, that. An absolute, a restricting underwire bra. Oh, the worst. Grace, I want to ask, finally... What is your snack 
and drink of choice whilst you watch telly? At the moment, I, this is, again, this is really grubby. At the moment, I am eating a lot of, like, pre-made porridge cups. This is so embarrassing. (laughs) I always tell people, whenever they ask me this, I always tell them the truth. I always say, it's oven chips with powdered gravy, or it's something... And they they look appalled, but this is the point of it. It's what are you going to for comfort? I love porridge. I absolutely love porridge. I could eat porridge every day like I was some kind of Elizabethan kind of <laughs> Elizabethan surf that's out in the street. I could, that's, that's surviving on gruel. And then I started making those instant porridges, those packs of instant porridge. I carry them everywhere. You can make them in hotel rooms. But then... They started making it almost like in a yogurt pot and it's cold porridge in a yogurt pot. I think it's Ambrosia that are making really nice ones. Okay. And I, I think it's just baby food. This is, this is, I've tried to think, what is it that's making me eat this all the time? Like a little baby <laughs> Stalin that's being brought kind of re, that's been bought mashed up food by its mother. And it's almost like, Life is so complicated, but I'm just going to put this beige gruel <laughs> into my mouth. And I started like throwing seeds and berries and things that I find in uh, supermarkets into it to try and give it some kind of bit of uh, bit of colour. So I'm eating that a lot at the moment. The second, when I'm having a drink at the moment, I've got really into kombucha. Now, that's not a thing that people say often. <laughs> kombucha. The first time you drink it, you go, oh, my God, this tastes a little bit like vinegar and a little bit like urine, if we're being very honest. <laughs> the second, third, seventh and eleventh time you drink it, you're like, this is still absolutely disgusting and it could be <laughs> killing me. But somewhere after about the 17th time, you start going, I live for this. I live for the funkiness of it. It's it's kind of weird and vinegary and fizzy. And, and, I, and I've been drinking tons of kombucha ginger beer kombucha is what i'm drinking at the moment i'm gonna have to give it a go give it a go give it a go it might make you feel sick about the first 15 or 16 times but after (laughs) that after that you'll feel great grace the last time someone said that to me was a spin teacher who said yeah after 14 or 15 times you'll actually start enjoying this and i thought that is 14 or 15 times too many okay once and i've never been back oh my never will no Well, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. And we've gone everywhere. We've been everywhere. So um, enjoy, listeners. Thanks for having me. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my interview with Jamie Oliver, in which he divulges how giving his wife Jules a foot massage is his surefire way to secure control of the remote. Or my interview with Andy and Makita Oliver, in which we talk about how if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you so much for listening to this series of the Radio Times podcast. It has been an absolute joy to bring you each and every episode from David Tennant talking about ignoring parental advice or Andy Oliver discussing why she had to step away from broadcasting to Rose Matafeo talking about love in your 30s and Jack Whitehall on the ups and downs of working with his dad. I hope you've also enjoyed these interviews. Please remember to rate and review so other TV lovers can find us. And of course, please do subscribe 
subscribe so I can let you know when the next series is returning. It won't be long, I promise. In the meantime, you can listen to Smart TV every Friday where I am joined by Radio Times columnist Caroline Frost to give you recommendations on the TV shows you absolutely should be watching. Until the next series, thank you so much. 